millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, The Outsiders Rebooting Our World, with Mark Stevenson's latest book, We Do Things Differently. And then Rory Clement's latest novel, Corpus. Mark Stevenson is a writer, broadcaster, futurologist and founder of the League of Pragmatic Optimists. He has written for Radio 4, The Times, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian and The New Statesman. And he's the author of the critically acclaimed and optimist tour of the future, which you may remember we spoke about on In Little Atoms a long time ago. He lives in London and is an advisor to, among others, The Virgin Earth Challenge, Civilised Bank and The Atlas of the Future. And Mark's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is We Do Things Differently, The Outsiders Rebooting Our World. Mark, welcome. Back. Thank you for having me. So what's the idea behind this book? Uh, so the idea behind this book is that at the end of writing the last book, it was very clear to me that we had all the technology and tools we needed to make the world more sustainable, humane, equitable and just. And what we didn't have was a way of organising ourselves in any sensible way, or it seemed that way. So all the problems seemed mostly institutional. And so this was a, an attempt to go and find people who've looked at institutional problems in healthcare, education, governance, food, water, uh, except healthcare, and succeeded in kind of rebooting them and prevailing. So it's not about people's theories about how we should run the world. It's about people who've gone and said, OK, I've fixed this problem in healthcare and they can't ignore me anymore because I, cause it's working and I'm succeeding, for instance. Yeah, so I was, I was going to ask, obviously there are many people out there with crackpot theories mm. of you know, how to solve the energy crisis or whatever. That scientists uh, you know, have many tales of people sending up letters on greening with mm. their, their ideas about solving the world. So how, what criteria have you used then to choose the people that you actually spoke to? So the criteria was I had to be able to go and see it. It had to exist in the real world. There had to be people benefiting from it. I had to be able to touch it, feel it, smell it, taste it. I had to be able to go and see it. It had to exist. And it had to have been going, with a couple of exceptions, for some time. So, you know, there are often maverick ideas that have a little bit of time in the sun and then six months later they've gone. Um, Most examples in the book have been going for many years 
and therefore they're kind of at the cutting edge of society, but they're actually proven. So that's that. That's what what that does is I think that they offer as a kind of a window on and perhaps a roadmap to a better future. And you just rushed through a few, but just say a little bit more about some of the challenges that we're talking about. Uh, well, all of them. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, the systems we've got uh, just not fit for the century we're in and they're all sort of born in the last century and were made with a whole bunch of assumptions and culture from that century built in um, so you know, healthcare for instance you know back then it made the best way to do it was to get all the ill people into a waiting room to see a doctor you know it's kind of ridiculous that we do that now uh, we make drugs in a particular way uh, we have an education system which is very efficient at teaching but terrible way to learn and uh, we have a governance system that's pretty much running on the same lines it was in 1750 I mean the idea in the 21st century that our governance is basically down to you pressing one of two buttons every four years for these two dumb crowds called political parties both of which you disagree with and both of whom don't understand the technology in your pocket and they're supposed to then govern you and they call it representative democracy but actually you're not represented you're replaced by your MP I mean you know millennials in particular just look at this and go are you kidding me really so so you know I looked at, at the energy system of course is visiting on this climate change the food system is massively unsustainable and the education system is educating us our children into a world that's already passed I don't think it takes more than a pint on a Friday night for most of us to agree about these things mm-hmm. the question is how do you move beyond that because all those systems come with an embedded culture and culture always tries to protect itself so you've said what the crime criteria is for who you wanted to speak to how did you go about finding these people <laughs> with great difficulty because you know because they're all fighting the, the incumbents a lot of these ideas as I say do get crushed I don't know people I just, just went out asking questions and eventually I'd find one and then one would lead me to another I mean there was a list of probably 150 potential innovations I could have covered and I just narrowed it down narrowed it down narrowed it down and it was down to how long have they been going? Does it work? Does it have something to say beyond itself about the wider sort of idea of systems change? And also as a writer, you know, is there a good entertaining story and a character in there that, that's going to keep readers interested in? You know, I mean, there's stories in there I'm actually talking about quite complex. You know, there's a bit in there about energy policy, which you know, as a as a author, you don't think that's going to be exciting. Nobody, you know, so how do you make energy policy, which is actually very, very important and entertaining read, and I actually do it via the story of a, of a town in Austria that moved over to renewables and the, and, the, and the sort of the mad basketball player, engineer and sort of monk slash mayor that turned the town around from being a economic basket case to being a prosperous totally renewable boom economy and it's their stories that, that kind of drive the whole book forward it's actually about, mostly actually that when you come at it the book is about what does it take to do something differently and succeed and what kind of attitude and skills do you need to do that well how do that i wanted to ask apart from obviously being included in your book if there's anything that the people that you speak to like they have a sort of common quality why do they succeed yeah so that's a really good question and i think one of the things pretty much is they're all outsiders. And I don't mean in a kind of like uh, they're mad crazy people in that they all ended up rebooting the industry that they they ended up working in because they had a motivation that was external to it. So for instance, if you look at Jamie Haywood, who created Patients Like Me, he's actually a mechanical engineer, but he ended up doing you know this extraordinary thing in healthcare. Why? Because his brother got motor neuron disease and he realised that his brother was going to die. So he set up a not-for-profit biotech company that didn't actually succeed. But in that process, he came across this idea of actually if you connect patients to each other via a kind of a dating network, they actually end up having far better outcomes and you know increasing their survival rates and reducing their hospital visits and all sorts by a, a, such a significant margin that it actually turns out to be the most powerful drug ever, patient engagement. And he could work out a method to do that. 
that very, very well. Um, if you look at you know the guys who turned the town around, well, you know, say one of them was a basketball player who just designed and an engineer. He wanted to go back and live in his old hometown, but he came with a he reasonably wanted to move back was because he had children. He wanted to live in the country, but he realised there was no economy for his kids. So he had these he had these external motivations. So the scientist who came with the new drug development method, he's not a sort of you know an American graduate in pharmacology. He's a you know a scientist in in India looking at you know four thousand of his countrymen dying you know every week from tuberculosis and just thinking you know that's wrong and if it carries on costing us 2.6 billion to make a drug that can't be working you know how is it we can afford to make drugs for obesity but we can't for for tuberculosis so they're, they're all kind of outsiders and they're all also i would say staggeringly dogmatic in that they just didn't give up and they're, the, what makes a book, I think, quite entertaining is there's quite a few moments where they're just being crushed and they're just about to fail and it's all going to go horribly wrong and then they just keep going and, 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 and they prevail. But the other thing about being a, a, an external person is it gives them that ability to see the lines of power, see the assumptions that other people can't. If you're a culture to a system, you often don't see the, the, the lines of power because they're not obvious to you. They're <laughs> part of the furniture for you. That's just the way it is. Where somebody from external goes, why do you do it that way? And people go, um, well, because we do. <laughs> and they go, well, you don't have to. And they go, well, Stop talking! You're scaring the horses. Um, Before we look at some of the examples, I want to go back to Jamie Hayward first of all, who you've already mentioned. This is not, you know, this is not just a a book that you've written and now you'll move on to something else. This is very much your thing, very much your an area of expertise for you. So I want to talk about if there's anybody that you would have liked to have included in the book but haven't because. You know, who have you found recently since the book went to press or whatever? Well, there's stacks of stuff that I didn't include in the book that I want to. And actually, there is something I'd love to include in the book, but I can't because I'm now under a non-disclosure agreement. And it's a, it's a system for basically creating water out of thin air in deserts. And it's an extraordinary story, and it will be in the next book, for sure. But I'm also happy now to hopefully fund that and get it from this maverick idea stage into, into proper development. But no, I, I think actually the ones I covered in the book were the ones that I really, really thought were the best and I said, because actually, when you narrow it down, there aren't that many people who have succeeded and prevailed in systems change. Most of the people that I perhaps much liked to have covered ended up getting killed by the system. These are the people that survive. So I'd say I'm pretty happy with what's in the book. Okay, and just just one other thing then. Another project of yours, which I mentioned in the introduction, the Atlas of the Future, oh, yes. is related. It is. To this. Tell it us is. quickly what that is. So the Atlas of the Future is not really my project. I've, they very kindly asked me to be on the advisory board. But the, that's part of the Democratising the Future Society. So it is It is a, a, a kind of a well, an atlas of maverick genius ideas happening all around the world that make the world more sustainable, equitable, humane or just. The atlas has quite a lot of the things in it that I would say are very early stage. So that you might have something on the atlas that's only been going for three or four months or five months. It has to be in the real world. It has to exist. But it didn't quite fit the criteria for the book because for the book it has to have been going for a while and succeeded or it has to be built and I can touch it and some of the ideas on the atlas are more like they're doing this really interesting thing let's hope they prevail and part of our job the atlas is to draw attention to them so they get more funding yeah sure more, so by having them collected yeah. together in a thing it's more likely yeah. that these people are no longer an outlier yeah so. indeed and, and also it's, it's, not, and it's an exercise in democratising the idea because if you can spread the ideas mm-hmm. around you know, they get more attention and also it's just a great place to get to cheer yourself up because every time you think the world is going horribly wrong there's nobody doing anything you just go to the atlas and there's you know hundreds of people doing amazing things to make the world better okay well let's, let's look at some of the examples we'll look at a handful of, of people in the book that you go off and meet and the places. So Boston, first of all. Yeah. And as I said, you mentioned Jamie Hayward. So his brother gets, you know, motor neurone disease. He sets up this company to try and find the cure. That doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work in time to save his brother. 
However, what it does end up doing is basically revolutionising the way that we do research. Yeah, well, there's, there's two amazing things that happen, I think. So what he realised was that there's all this information out there that patients have about their condition. So if you have particularly a chronic condition like motor neuron disease, which you, you know, you'll live with for years until you die, you know how to manage that probably better than anybody else for somebody like you. And his idea was like, why couldn't my brother find somebody at the same progression of the disease, the same sex, the same weight, who was on, you know, and say, well, what, how's these drugs working for you or whatever? So it's kind of like a dating site. And what then, of course, that reveals is that you know, people are recording their data about you know, what drugs they're taking, how often they're having a seizure, for instance, if they're an epileptic, blah, blah. And so you've got this really interesting data set that you can start to use. So the patients come together and start doing helping themselves out and reducing their visits to hospital and improving their response to drugs because they're now and they're, then they're better informed. And there's some great studies that show that you know, they're better informed, they have more respect for their physicians, they go to hospital less, they use less drugs. It's just a win, 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 win because they're using that embedded knowledge with them. But then they also sort of start to group together to do very interesting things. So the, one of the examples in the book was a bunch of patients with motor neuron disease kind of conducted their own medical trial in super fast time and outperformed a clinical trial and they did it for almost no money and they saved sort of 12 million pounds in doing it. Uh, so there was, a, there was a, a small study that came out that said lithium carbonate might reduce the advancement of disease, sort of slow it down. And so a bunch of these people started taking it anyway. Now, you're going, well, that, that's not really a clinical trial, but they're going to take it anyway because they're, they're looking at death sentence. They'll go for anything. What they were able to do was, on the site, they say, well, actually, we know all the people are taking it. There's a whole bunch of people that aren't taking it. We can create a virtual trial by finding people who are the same weight, same height, same whatever, same progression of disease, the one that's taking it, the one that's not. They're all recording their data, and we can see sometime later if this has any progression or not. And they discovered very, very quickly that it didn't, that this was a non-trial. But, but what was interesting was, in the meantime, because of that early sort of research paper, a big national institute had set up a massive clinical trial, $12 million, recruiting patients, and they basically they got to the point that there's no point in this trial because patients like me have already proved that it's pointless. So it's you know, a very interesting way of doing research, actually, in the field. And now, you know, patients like me have made all these deals with people like the FDA to test drugs, you know, to see what's happening in the real world with people's responses to drugs. So it's, you know, it's a fascinating... You know, this collective power, you know, A, it helps people out individually, but it also helps if you can collate that data, you can start doing very interesting things in, in the wider research space. And is there, is there a feasibility for that to be scaled up? Well, that's what the, I think that's what the FDA and patients like me are looking at. And, and they've done a number of deals with drug companies to think about how we do this. Um, because, you know, everybody responds differently to the drugs. So if you can find, say, actually, Neil, you're this age, you're this way, your disease, this progression... We previously would have prescribed this drug for you, but we now know from the information from patients like me that actually you're going to respond much better to this one over here. That's a, that's a really good thing to do.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Mark Stevenson. We're talking about We Do Things Differently, The Outsiders Rebooting Our World. We've just been in over in Boston, let's go over to India. Yes. And again, a project that you, you already briefly alluded to, this is uh, Samir Brahmachari, who's yes. um, he's also pioneering a better way to do, to do medical research, yeah. particularly in, 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 to do with the cost of drugs. Um, for TB. So again, tell give us a bit of a background as to as to how he came to this. So Samir was, you know, very vexed about drug resistance. So we haven't had a new book. I haven't had a new drug for tuberculosis, frontline <laughs> drugs, since the nineteen seventies. And the reason is uh, apparently that drugs are very very expensive to make. You know, the current industry figure is it's two point six billion to take a drug to market, and therefore because tuberculosis generally affects the poor um, there's no profit in it uh, and the, the drug company's argument is it's not that we're evil it's just that if we don't make profits we make no drugs so we can't do drugs so where there's no, no money actually the real reason that it costs 2.6 billion is because the drug industry is massively inefficient and has become more so and so they use their own sort of staggering inefficiency as a fig leaf to say that they can't come up with it. so rather than you know reducing the cost of producing drugs they're saying oh, it's getting more and more expensive therefore the poor may as well die so to Samir this is just obviously morally unacceptable particularly you know in his homeland where lots of people are dying from tuberculosis so he says well how can we do this better so there's a an industry metric which is it's it's, it's 5,000 to 1 if you start with 5,000 compounds trying to sort of target a particular disease only one of them will end up being a drug and therefore that's why it's so expensive he's saying well why is it 5,000 to 1 why are we starting with 5,000 to begin with and he says also he also said that we don't build cars and and, uh, and aeroplanes the way we did 50 years ago but we're still building drugs in a petri dish now, we build cars and aeroplanes in the computer first. Why don't we build the drugs virtually? Now, that sounds like a, you know, a good idea, but what that means is it means you've got to go and model the environment in which the drug works, which means modelling, say, a tuberculosis uh, bacteria, which is, which is a non-trivial thing to do. Even the simplest bacteria is, is a staggeringly complex piece of machinery. And so in order to model it, you've got to go and basically read 45,000 scientific papers, extract the relevant data, stick it all into some kind of model, check it, all that data under time, see how it fits together, then give that to somebody who can model it and create a virtual um, tuberculosis, which is why it hasn't really been done, because no one institution can do that. And he said, well, actually, one institution can't, but I can crowdsource that information. So he set up, and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously shortening the story quite a lot, and there's more detail in the book, but basically created an incredible crowdsourcing platform with a lady called um, Anshu, uh, who was in his team, that allowed students, basically, on, you know, from around the world to read those papers, extract the relevant data, create an annotated genome that they could then, uh, they could then turn into a mathematical model. And basically, something that would have been 400 years' work or something daft ended up being, the information being used ended up being collated in about four months. The crowdsourcing platform was very cleverly designed so that everything was checked five or six times so they knew it was accurate. And then a brilliant uh, young man called uh, Rohit, um, who'd been found via this crowdsourcing thing, you know, and a mathematical genius, along with Samir's help, takes all that data and is able to create out of it a mathematically accurate virtual tuberculosis, which they then start to try and kill. So they're basically trying to, you know, I said that this is a great bit in the book, I say, so you're building a, a simulation, you want to fly the bug. He says, no, we're building a simulation, we want to crash the bug. And they, they say, well, let's try and kill it inside the computer. They find 12 new targets, you know, which is, you know, chinks in tuberculosis armour that have never been seen before, ever. 
and that are then subsequently verified in the lab. They come up with one new drug for tuberculosis almost you know, within a, six months or whatever, and they spend $15 million. And, by, and of course, they give away all the IP for free, and that virtual tuberculosis bacteria is available to anybody who wants to download it. So you can experiment on it and find ways to attack it and kill it. You know, so $2.6 billion for the traditional model, less than $15 million for the virtual model, crowdsource, IP given away for free. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful and fantastic. But of course, you go and say that to Pfizer or GSK, they're like... Well, maybe we don't want people creating drugs very cheaply and giving away all the IP because then what happens to our business model? But, you know, Samir's like, well, I don't care about your business model, mm-hmm. I care about saving lives. Staying in India, and you talk about a rural farmers who yeah. have basically started a, a new green revolution with yeah. rice yields. So tell us, first of all, what the, the background to that was. What was the issue, and then what's been done differently? So the issue is that our food system is massively unsustainable. We get to a point, you know, sometime in the 50s and 60s where we're looking down the barrel of mass starvation. We have this thing called the Green Revolution, largely associated with Norman Borlaug, who comes up with these new strains of wheat and rice, which give much higher yields. But the kicker is that they only give those higher yields if you add inputs like water and fertiliser. They respond very well, and that gives the higher yield. And what that's led to is a massively unsustainable farming system because we're now using so much water that half the country's, half the world's population lives under water stress. I mean, you know, in California, they've got you know, droughts now because the agriculture sucks so much water. You know, half of you know, the Punjab is on the brink of economic collapse because the water table is dropping so badly. Uh, the fertiliser, we're now overusing fertiliser to try and compensate for that kind of stuff. And then we have the pesticide treadmill. All these things, you know, you can see how it started for very good reasons. But now we've got to this point where we're degrading the soil. The water table's dropping. Half the soil in, sorry, half the carbon in the atmosphere has come from the soil because now the way we're farming has created such soil erosion that we're not placing it quick enough. And of course, if we destroy the soils and destroy the water, all of the humanity basically starts to death. So that's not a good thing. So that's the problem. Now, the question is, can we get the yields we need without those expensive inputs. And so the accepted wisdom is, no, you can't. You need to buy up all the subsistence farmers, send them off to live in the city and do a massive agricultural economies of scale thing. Turns out that's not true. There are systems of agriculture broadly categorised under this catch-all term called agroecology. And what that really is, is the science of understanding how nature is so bountiful and then working with it rather than working or rather than trying to remove it so that the current agricultural systems are largely characterized by saying we're going to remove nature as much as possible and try and control it mm-hmm. monocrops pesticides fertilizers irrigation it's like we're going to control this agroecology is much more like saying now we're going to work with nature, tweak it a bit here and there, but let it do its thing because it's incredibly bountiful. And I went to look at something called the system of rice intensification, which is very controversial because people say, well, it's not really a system. Lots of scientists argue about it. Blah, blah, blah. It's not really a thing. But, you know, I went, I thought, well, I'm going to check it out. So I went to these fields um, in northern India, Ranchi, and you look at a traditional field, you know, and it's got this yield and you go to the SR, the system rice intensification field next door and it's twice, three times the yield. In fact, you can, you know, and I've got photographs of people standing in one field and the rice crop comes up to their knees and standing in the next field and it comes up to their waist. That's why I, in the book I had to go and see it and fill it for myself. And you look at this field that's now generating the same kinds of yields you'd get from an, ag- an agribusiness industrial farming process but the farmer's not using extra water, it's all fed by rain, he's not using extra fertiliser, or if he uses only a little bit, his inputs are much, much smaller. And what that means is you're raising a poor farmer out of poverty. You're not saying, buy up your land and go and get a job in the city. It's like, actually, you can now do your business. Suddenly you're moved out of subsistence into profit, your children go to school, and the good news about that is 56% of agricultural production is still in 500 million small farms. So rather than being the problem, which is what we've been told, these small farms can now become the solution, 
and they don't have to rely on the Monsantos and the Bayers for all their kind of the stuff they want to sell. But of course, that goes against the whole again shareholder-driven model of agriculture that says no buy our fertilizer, buy it. You know, when you go and go, well, actually, this guy's not using any fertilizer and getting the same yield as you. Of course, the press and the incumbents will kind of go, it can't possibly be true. It must all be lies. Which is again why I, in the book, I'm always in the fields or you know, in the laboratories going, does that actually work and, and testing it? And it was fa- fantastic. It was brilliant to see this this abundance without having to you know, destroy the, the environment. Um, the next story I want to look at, I think, is, is one of the ones that most seems like you know some crazy greening <laughs> writer. Yeah. Um, over to Bishop Stortz with oh, yes. AC to Dearman Shed. Yes. This is an incredible story, the Dearman Engine. Yeah. So... Again, what was the problem and what is a Dearman engine? So, so let's start with what it is first and then I'll, we'll come into what the problem is. So for years, for about 100 to 120 years, people have been trying to create engines that will run on liquid air. You compress the air, you, you release it, as it expands, it can drive an engine. You know, Because you know, running something on air sounds like a pretty sustainable way of doing things. The problem is you can compress the air, but you can't get enough umph out of it when you depressurise it. You know, It just runs out of puff very soon. Peter Dirner worked out a way to increase the amount of energy you get out of liquid air and he did it basically by injecting antifreeze into the engine cycle and what that meant was that the uh, uh, heat could get into the engine much faster and as the air expanded it, it kept the energy up in the piston chamber. So a brilliant insight, you know, goes and hacks his lawnmower with a can of antifreeze and it's like, oh, my lawnmower is working on liquid air. And then he goes and hacks his car and his car, oh, my car is working on liquid air. These were things that would have been impossible with a liquid air engine previously. So that's great, but they have no idea what to do with it because it still doesn't compete with a diesel engine. You know, it doesn't, it's never going to have the umph of a petrol engine. It's like, so this engine is now useful. It runs on liquid air, which is kind of cool. And actually we throw away loads of liquid nitrogen, you know, which is, you can use in the engine as well. In the UK, well, actually, all around the world, we throw it away because we make lots of liquid oxygen and we throw liquid oxygen. So we've got this fuel sitting there waiting to be used. But so I wonder, you know, what's, what is it really for? Because in terms of actually just being an engine, it's still a little bit weedy. But then they realised that the, the interesting thing about it is, is a liquid air engine runs at minus 195 degrees centigrade, which means not only does it produce power, but it gives you refrigeration for free and sustainable refrigeration for free. And one of the problems with our food system, another one, is that we lose 30 to 50% of the food we grow before it even reaches the human stomach. Because in developing economies, which are usually the hotter economies, there's not, a, what they, you know, there's not sustainable refrigeration. There's not a refrigeration, a cold chain, as they call it, which you know, keeps the food fresh. So he's basically invented uh, an engine that can generate power, but also give you sustainable refrigeration in developing economies by using air. And the other thing is, because he's now worked out how to get more energy out of air, it turns out you can use air as a battery. And one of the things we need for a renewable economy is batteries to deal with the intermittency problem with renewables. And it turns out that he's created an incredibly cheap battery you can stick on the grid and it's been tested and it comes out at one of the lowest prices for a battery ever. And, you know, compressing air is something we know how to do. It's getting the energy out. And he's, he solved that problem in his shed. And now there's two companies spun off from it, Hive Energy, which do the batteries, and the Diamond Engine Company, which is doing the uh, refrigeration engines. And it's all going great guns, and they're all very happy, and everybody's very excited. Just one more story then, and um, this took place in Detroit. Oh, yes. And I think this one's great, because, you know, we've talked about a situation in the developing world with you know, people you know, revolutionising food production, which mm. is obviously an amazing story. This is a supposedly dead-end town on its uppers in the developed world, how are people, what are people doing to, to 
regenerate Detroit. So that that was a, a kind of a revelation for me, that story. And, and actually, just before we go on, you reminded me of a bit early in the book where, where I asked a friend of mine, Juan Enriquez, you know, where should I go to see these systems innovations? Mm-hmm. And he says, go to the places where it's most broken. That's where you'll find the real innovation. You won't find it in Silicon Valley. Where everything has fallen apart, that's where the innovation will be. And Detroit is kind of like a poster boy for mm-hmm. everything that's fallen apart. You know, the whole city is, you know, there's, there's 1.7 million people used to be in Detroit, and now I think there's 800,000. So the city is just too big for the people. It's falling around uh, their ears. It's kind of just a disaster. In fact, you know, movie makers and you know, go there if they want a post-apocalyptic backdrop for the latest Transformers movie, they'll go and film it in Detroit. So what they've done is they've started turning all those vacant lots into farms. And now Detroit is going is on is on of course to become a food sovereign city where they grow most of the food that they'll eat in the city. Uh, and the New York Times now says that the best place to get food in America is Detroit. And I have to say, I had some of the best food I've ever had in my life in Detroit because it was just so damn fresh because they were growing it next door. But the food thing is not the important thing. It, it, what it is is they've created a system whereby people who are separated, disenfranchised, uh, there was crime, all that kind of stuff. Um, poor health by bringing people together on this common project of farming they've started to rebuild communities in quite extraordinary ways and now the city has got its heart back it kind of lost itself and now it's like oh we've got this thing we work on together and that turns out to be a recurring theme throughout the book is that people divided by politics or economics or whatever are very soon brought back together if they've got the right project which they can work on together it's the idea of what they call collective efficacy and there's a story later in the book about a school which used Mm -hmm. the same idea to reboot itself from being the worst school in the UK to being the best on the roughest housing estate in the UK so or one of the roughest housing estates in the UK so so this idea of bringing people together people divided by politics brought together around projects is a, is a recurring theme throughout the book and I think that's very helpful in these divided times because you know we're told to be left right you've got Trumpism you've got Brexit it's all we're all separated we're all tribal but if you can find the right project people will very soon forget their uh, politics because they've got something to build I was going to say you know in these times Trump's about to, you know, rejuvenate the, the fossil fuel industry. Mm. What is the what is the step that we need to take? Because all of these are incredible ideas. As you mentioned at the very beginning, you know, some of these things have been working for years, mm. but we don't know about them. Mm. Well, what's the step that's needed to take to make these things truly revolutionary, to change the world in a significant way? Well, uh, there's several things. Uh, so we talk about the fossil fuel uh, industry reboot of Trump. That, that's going to inevitably fail because renewables are now getting so ridiculously cheap. I mean, you know, in Dubai at the moment, they're buying solar power at three cents per kilowatt hour. Saudi Arabia has announced a transition plan to get out of oil as its primary revenue source. You know, if Saudi Arabia isn't betting on it, and I cover, you know, distributed energy, the idea of energy internets, all this stuff that's mm-hmm. coming... There's an economic argument that sometimes just will prevail. And at the end of the day, if you look at what's happening with renewables, you can see that playing out. It is like the Instagram blockbuster moment, you know, and the fossil fuel industry can try as hard as they like. But at the end of the day, they'll be seen as throttling the economy, not boosting it. Because if you can pay, you know, virtually nothing or very little for your energy, or you can buy Putin's gas, you're going to go for the cheaper stuff. And that's going to take, that's, that's, a, that's a generational transition. It's going to take 20 years, but there's, there's no stopping it. Um, so, the, you know, you have to find an economic argument. Uh, but a lot of it is actually, I believe, is just changing culture, which is why I do what I do. 
know, if you want to democratise these ideas, you've got to go out and talk about them, you've got to let people know they're there. So I've just been, for instance, you know, at the EU Commission, and they've asked me back, you know, because I gave them a very hard time about how they've basically been rubbish at democracy and how their energy policy was fantastic for 1995. So a lot of what it is is about doing things like this, writing books, going out there, here it is, here's a bunch of stuff you can use. And the more we know about that, the more literate we are about those ideas, the more likely people are to grab hold of them. So my solution to that problem is... I'm going to carry on writing books, doing talks, doing comedy shows with Ed Gillespie as part of the Future Noughts, doing TV shows that are hopefully coming up to say, look, there is a different future out there that's participatory, that's diverse, that includes us all. And we do have the technologies now and they are now getting to the point where you can grab hold of them and do something with them. And I think that's, you know, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm talking to you. Um, that's why I'm sort of aiming to become prime minister in about 10 years time to take those democratised ideas and, and, and really sort of move into a different space. We're in a transitional space. I think everybody knows it. We're going through this quite painful transition where the human race is moving from being a slightly surly teenager that won't tidy up its room, who are out of necessity necessity must grow into a responsible adult or kill itself and I hopefully will do the, the former not the latter well you'll certainly have my vote <laughs> so I've been talking to Mark Stevenson and we've been talking about we do things differently stories from the front line of the future which is out now from Profile Books Mark thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with us thank you for having me I love Little Adams it's such a great show Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Ian Sinclair. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
Rory Clements won the CWA Ellis Peters Historical Award in 2010 for his second novel, Revenger. He is the author of the John Shakespeare series of novels, which are currently in development for TV by the team behind Poldark and Endeavour. And Rory's latest novel, Corpus, we're going to be talking about today. Rory, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Would you describe for us in your own words what Corpus is about, first of all? Corpus is a thriller. It's got murder and mayhem and mystery, and it's uh, set in the 1930s, in specifically 1936, December of that year, at the time of the abdication of King Edward VIII. And it's, uh, it involves various political moves to try and stop the abdication. That's basically it. And uh, my hero or protagonist is a history professor at Cambridge who, until that point, had only ever dealt with matters of espionage in his reading on Sir Francis Walsingham, who was uh, Queen Elizabeth's first spymaster. Suddenly he finds himself drawn into this uh, world of spying and, uh, as I said, murder and mayhem. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I was particularly taken by the idea that although this is a book of, as you said, murder and mayhem, and there is spies and soldiers and Nazis and communists, your main protagonists are academics and literary types, which I I thought was particularly fun. So tell us why you wanted to do that. Well, I wanted to set it in Cambridge, because Cambridge has got uh, an extraordinary history of uh, involvement in important matters in the 20th century. Most of the people who worked at Bletchley Park came from Cambridge. Most people who worked on radar came from Cambridge. People who worked on uh, the atom, splitting the atom, of course, that's where Cambridge was. But above all else, this was the city of spies. This is where Philby and Blunt and Burgess McLean all met and uh, began their lives of uh, betrayal. So it seemed a perfect place to do it. But why, why a history professor? Well, I wanted somebody who was a bit of an outsider, I suppose, and he's half American, half Irish. I wanted somebody who was uh, both bemused and amused by the uh, British upper classes, who uh, were the sort of people who tended to inhabit Cambridge at that time. Somebody who looked at them with a, a wry eye. And tell us about a couple of the other characters as well. So you're talking about Tom Wilde there, who's the, the history professor and, and the sort of main protagonist. Tell us something about Lydia Morris. Lydia Morris lives next door to Tom Wilde. Uh, he lives out of college, although he has rooms in college. And uh, she is a sort of... Uh, she would have been too young to be a suffragette, but she's carrying on the uh, work of the suffragettes, if you like. She's also a bit of a pacifist. Uh, she believes that the First World War is being forgotten and she's desperate that it shouldn't be forgotten. She is uh, uh, perhaps a woman ahead of her time in many ways. She's certainly not the sort of... Uh, she's not a glamour puss in it. She would hate that thought. She considers herself a poet. She dresses in a duffel coat. And there's certainly something going on between her and uh, Tom Wilde, but they never seem to quite get it together. And then the other third character I wanted to talk about was Philip Eaton, who plays a major role in the book. And obviously we can only go so far here because, he, you know, he plays a key role in a lot of the mystery of the book. But he is, I mean, he is basically another protagonist in this story, I'd almost go as far as to say. He is. There is, a, I guess there is a bit of Kim Philby in him. Uh, in that he uh, he is somebody who is works for MI6, but he he's got a bit of a difficult history as well. So it's not I don't want to give anything away, but it's not quite clear from the book, perhaps even uh, quite where his loyalties lie. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a difficult man. He's very smooth. He's very urbane. He's in many ways he's quite the opposite of Tom Wilde. They don't always see eye to eye on everything, but they in this case they are having to work together against a conspiracy which threatens threatens actually the uh, the government of Britain. I could tell you a bit more about actually Tom Wilde and the inspiration behind him, if you like. Please do, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, first of all, to say, I mean, you've already hinted at this, but he's a history professor, but who he studies, who he's written a biography of, is particularly important. Yeah, he is. His his period is the late Elizabethan period, and uh, he is particular fondness for the spy networks which were set up by Sir Francis Walsingham, which of course was fundamental in keeping Elizabeth I on the throne because she was subject to many many foreign plots by France and Spain, who wanted to uh, get her off the throne and replace her with Mary Queen of Scots. But Walsingham was the man who managed to uh, counter all these plots. And he's a very important chap, actually, in the in the 20th century spy networks, in that he inspired them, which is how I came up with my guy Tom Wilde, because he is actually inspired, although he isn't the character, he is inspired by two American characters. first one is a chap called Conyers Reed, who was educated in Oxford uh, in American, but he was a student of, like my man Tom Wilde, of Sir Francis Walsingham, and he wrote the first biography of Walsingham, uh, a three-volume magisterial volume, if you like, which uh, for a long time was the, the most important work on Walsingham. Now, Conyers Reid went on to help found the OSS, that's the Office of Strategic Studies, which was the wartime forerunner of the CIA. So you, they have the direct link, if you like, between Walsingham, who Conyers Reid admired very much, and the way that CIA was set up. The other guy who was inspired Tom Wilde, the American called James Jesus Angleton, who spent time as a British public. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.